This is a Podfire production. Share the love, the fight to speak my truth. We acknowledge and pay our respects to all First Nations peoples. In Australia, we honour the cultural connections and responsibilities of our custodians, past, present and future. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Yugambeh-speaking people. Please note that any information, views or opinions expressed in this podcast are not intended to identify specific individuals or place blame. This is a personal account and honest opinion of how I felt bullied, isolated and intimidated through a system of oppression based on the facts of the matter across numerous years. My name's Linda Bumaiwai. I live, work and exist in and for my community and family based here on Yugambeh Jagun and I'm absolutely blessed and strengthened and have survived because of it. Had a journey, we're coming up to four years. It's taken from the beginning of a journey that has changed me and my life forever and that I've battled enormously, emotionally, financially to be able to share my truth and in my truth be able to hopefully support and share the love with others that may be out there doing exactly what I was going through, exactly what I was going through on their own. So that's that was my driver. It's always been my driver. I've never had anything to hide, but I was forced into a process that made me feel like a sociopath, like a criminal, like I existed in a world that certainly wasn't one that I believed I lived in um, my whole life and my whole existence. So for the people out there that are um, having to face processes and strategies from government or large organisations that make them feel isolated and make them feel bullied and powerless, I want them to know that you can survive it and you need to find the strength in the battle to be able to survive that. And through that strength, then, you know, if we can support and love each other more, then we can only build a more connected, stronger society. That's me, really. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a mum. I'm a nan. I'm a community person. I'm an aunt. I'm a sister. Um, I'm many things, but I'm, I'm connected to everything around me, human and energy. On the 13th of February, 2020, all yours. So, yeah, it was um, February of 2020. It was um, an exciting week. It was All Stars Week and a week that um, is certainly very close to my heart Um, and also across community. It's um, something special for our people and, and... Everyone, really, there's always an excitement around it. So it happened in that week and I was pretty much walked out of my building and suspended from a position that I um, I undertook and I was 
recruited for because of my connection with community. I was recruited into a position because I was a part of the community and I was recruited because of my connections across community. I dedicated my whole life um, to my community and did everything I thought was transparent and honest um, and never for myself, always for others. And I was um, pretty much walked out of the building and suspended and in that suspension totally disconnected from um, not only work but um, when you work and live in your community, whether you're an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person or not, but anyone that works or lives in their communities, um, there's a crossover there. And when you, and especially when you're recruited under those, um, you know, guidelines and reasons. Um, so I was disconnected from my community, but more importantly, I was disconnected from my family um, and also my cultural responsibilities. So I had cultural responsibilities because I'm a traditional custodian. Um, here in southeast Queensland on Yugambeh um, Jagun, and I had always um, been very transparent and open about all of my connections and the different roles that I play because I play many different roles in different areas across the um, across the region. Um, and I was yeah, I was suspended. I have, was not given a single reason in terms of any allegations. So I wasn't presented with any allegations. I was just suspended and I was given a, a list of organisations and uh, people that I could no longer communicate with at all. The problem with that is that those organisations and people were also part of my family and they were also part of my community and they were also part of my cultural responsibility. So in seeking clarification around that, um, I certainly was not provided with any guidance as to, to clarifying that. So I was left isolated in my own home, not understanding why, and I just, I couldn't even for myself figure out what the reason was. Um, I put my hand up and I said, if I've done something wrong, it wasn't intentional, just tell me and have a discussion with me. I'm more than happy to tell the truth. I'm, I'm more than happy to say, you know, I stuffed up. I didn't mean to, um, but just let me know what I did so that we can work through it, so that we can have conversations and um have an outcome. I'm right here. I'm, I've got nothing to hide. I'm an open book. What you see is what you get. I've never tried or wanted to hide anything. Um, and I pretty much got zero. I was like left in this bubble at home. I couldn't even speak to my family about what was happening. My only outlet was um, professional support. So my only outlet where I had the opportunity to speak my truth was with like a psychologist or a social worker or someone of a professional capacity, a lawyer. Um, and that was my only outlet where I could actually speak my truth. 
or what truth I thought I was because I didn't even <laughs> I didn't even know what I was trying to say or, or why I was even in this position. I actually honestly could not even guess why it was happening. I was just and then I just because I was getting nothing thought I actually believed I was a I truly believed I was a sociopath that dedicated my life to lies that throughout um, my whole working career and I started working when I was like 16 and before that like when you're connected to community you <laughs> it's a lifelong commitment um, and I always believed that I was always here to help others strengthen others um, and always had nothing to hide so I was like thrown into this washing machine of, uh, and I had no, I was drowning and I had no reason. I had nothing to cling on to, to think, what, why was I here? Did they say what would happen if you spoke to those people? Uh, yeah, I was given a very clear directive in terms of, um, I think, disciplinary action under whatever acts or codes or, things like that, if I entered into any um, meetings or conversations. And that's why I sought clarity. I sought clarity in writing and I didn't get that clarity. And it was basically um, that process as to why my complaint was a a initially accepted by the Human Rights Commission. But that was almost 12 months later. Really? How does one manage that? You spoke before about the many different roles that you play, whether it be grandmother, mum, um, wife. How does one manage a situation like that? I don't know that I manage very well at all. Um, I would just kind of get out of bed and, and try to run a routine of life. Like, I think... The blessing in having a family and and people around is you can't ignore them. So I've got a a young fella um, who's nine now, so he would have been five. He was just going into prep that year um, and I needed to keep him going. So it was probably the routine of life that kind of kept me going and I just, I, I, I don't know. I had to take each hour as it came. If anything, I um, just facing an hour on my own and you do your own head in. So you, you try and kind of focus on other things or things that you're allowed to. A lot of the time I was thinking I'm not allowed to, <laughs> to focus on other things or, or talk to people where I normally would. Um, so, you know, having my little fella there was probably the one thing that I could focus on to keep me going because I had to as a mum. So there's an extract here from the letter mm-hmm. and the email. And you okay if I read it? Yes. With regards to submitting a public uh, interest disclosure of your own, this appears to prevent you. It says included in the direction is that you are not to have contact with any departmental or ministerial staff in relation to the matter. 
You are further directed to not make comment in relation to this matter on any social media sites. You are reminded that your obligations under the Code of Contact continue to apply throughout the following conclusion of this process and fail to meet your obligations with regard to confidentiality may result in disciplinary action being taken against you. Yes. But you don't know what you've done. No. So how can you tell anyone or talk to anyone about it? That's right. That's bizarre. How do you come to a conclusion if you can't (laughs) talk about it? Isn't it? Like, you have to... and, And... this will happen, I'm sure, during this whole story. We're going to be laughing about certain things and crying about it. You oh. have to. <laughs> but some of this stuff's ridiculous. Yes. Like, if I can't come to a con- like, you, there's certain people you weren't allowed to, to talk to on a list, and I'm sure 90% of those you spoke to on a daily basis. Yes. They were my community. But you can't talk to them about something that you don't know what you can't talk to them about, so therefore you can't talk to them at all. No. Otherwise, you're going to have discipline reaction. That's right. That doesn't make any sense to me. And you're left in your head and then you think about um, – and because I'd always been so honest and transparent, I was then like too scared to do anything. I was at the point where um, if I drove out of home and I might see a government car heading in, you know, down the road or pass a government car or something like that and I'd be thinking, oh, I should be back home because I should be at home not talking to anybody. Um, and I just get a, a, a fear of like I was always doing the wrong thing. When you don't know what you've done, you think and then doubt everything that you do. So I always thought then I'm doing the wrong thing in whatever and everything that I was doing. And then you then doubt everything because you have no answers or nothing to hang on to. You then doubt everything. Looking at these numbers, there's a 10-month break between when they first did this mm-hmm. to when you actually first – and they don't even tell you what they are, but they tell no. you that there's 15 issues and 43 allegations. It was just a summary um, that was given to me 10 months later and that summary was very overwhelming and it came with thousands of pages – of stuff to kind of bury me, which was overwhelming in itself. Um, but on the day that it was actually given to me, well, I was, um, I'll never forget it because I was at, it was a, a brother's funeral and I was the only speaker at that funeral, a brother from another mother, but mm-hmm. he was my brother. Um, and I remember receiving a call because when you're in this state, you've got to be on call. So you've got to be answering any phone calls or messages. Um, I think because technically you're still on duty, you're you're still employed. Um, So you need to be on call and answering everything. And I I hadn't answered uh, the call that morning because it was my brother's funeral. And um, I sent a text message back and I said, oh, I'm in sorry business today, do you mind, because it was a Friday, do you mind if we could please talk about this on Monday? Um, You know, I'd already been tortured for 10 months, I figured maybe just one weekend, Um, and I got back the message, no, I need to talk to you today. Um, And so I rang, and it was to, I guess, in their minds, show me the courtesy, um, and, and, talk to me and and let me know that it was coming um 
but they were um, advising me that I was going to be emailed some of the allegations today. Um, but that that had to happen on that day. Um, so I'll never, I'll never kind of forget that day. And then um, when I did kind of open them and, and started looking at it, that was then a h- another whole wave of just, I couldn't believe, firstly, how big it was um, and how much information there was in there, like just how it's worded, um, that it starts off with um, words that, you know, highlight and jump out at you were crime and misconduct. And so I was literally had visions of I'm going to jail for something I didn't know what I'd done, but more importantly, I was going to lose my child because I had um, a young fella that's in my care and he's my son, but he's under orders, like, you know. So I'm I'm facing losing my child and going to jail is what I saw. And then you see the mountain (laughs) of paperwork and words that are thrown at you that then you you just can't see it's you can't well they say you can't see the trees for the forest or the Mm. forest for the trees or whatever it is um because you're just so overwhelmed by the enormity of what comes at you it's not just a simple document that you know has some dot points Someone doesn't sit down and have a conversation with you about what's in there. You just emailed this mountain mountain of stuff that you need to kind of sift through and it was that overwhelming that I just kind of couldn't I, I, I couldn't even understand the words that were were being written. As I said, the only words that popped out to me was, crime and misconduct and then a whole lot of other words after that um and to be able to just take a breather from that sense of being overwhelmed I had to um I knew that the only way I could get a breather was if I um had taken sick leave because if I'm on sick leave they they don't communicate with you um so I'd um, gone to my doctor and had um, applied for some leave just to be able to breathe because um, we're coming into Christmas. Just lost my brother. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, facing all these words. So while I kind of tried to decipher all of that, I was lucky enough to have a professional support that I could reach out to who sat next to me <laughs> to decipher the words that were being thrown at me. And when we actually sat and deciphered those words, it became clear. Like I couldn't even read them. I actually had to have him physically read them to me and we discussed them together. And when he did that, we slowly started to realise that none of the words were actually close to the truth, that 
it looked great in a theoretical sense. Um, but everything that they had there, I actually had an answer for. And everything that they um, I had uh, were allegations against me, I'd already provided information prior to that, which is why I was so confused. I'd already highlighted. So, for example, there was stuff in there around conflict of interest. And I'd already highlighted all of my conflict of interests. I'd already been honest with that. I'd filled out their paperwork. But over and above the paperwork, I'd also been very clear face-to-face with team members and everyone that I dealt with um, my different roles and where I was sitting in a certain conversation and I was always so transparent in that, which is why it was then overwhelming to think that it was then an allegation because I'd always thought I was honest and transparent in those so that it never translated into an allegation for me. Um, Have you ever worked out why? Like you're open, you're the most open, honest person I know. But the thing is you're telling these people all of these things to be open and honest. Yes. Do you think that they're jealous or that, and, and that might be the wrong <laughs> word, but do you know what I mean? Like, is, is that one of the reasons why this has sort of happened? Because yeah. if you look at the numbers, it's something like 15 issues and 43 allegations. That was only the first lot. That's insane. It grew from there. But that, but like, <laughs> yeah. and then the first part of this is just all this confidentiality, public, or everyone else's problem except yours. Mm. Like it says, you can't tell anyone you can't do this or you'll be in contempt and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. So let's make you feel as bad as possible. Absolutely. And then let's tell you all the stuff that you've done. Yes. I, I totally, just find it amazing. Totally buried me. And it was a left field. I um, There was nothing in there that I ever thought was wrong, really. I, I um, had always thought I'd been... And, and evidence then showed that, you know, once I had someone next to me to give me the courage to actually break those downs and make sense of it, we actually answered. Actually answered every single one of them. I had an answer for every single one of them. But in that moment, I had no answers. Mm. I had no answers because I just felt like I was buried. And I think it's those points that many people do get buried. Many people do go, you know what, this is just too hard. This is too intimidating. I must be wrong. It's too much to face. I need to just walk away. And the easy thing to do is to honestly just resign. Um, and the only thing that kept me going is that I couldn't look myself in the mirror and and not be able to say that I gave 200% and that I could tell my truth because in this process I was, I couldn't speak. I've never had anything to hide and then to be made to feel like I had something to hide and not be able to speak was, um, I guess, like the ultimate cruelty for me. So I just, I had to keep going because I needed to speak my truth. I also needed to speak for the people that haven't been able to speak, that they've been, they have been drowned by this process and that they've, um, had to walk away for their own 
um, their own well-being and their own sanity and their own survival but then step into then another world because they haven't been able to heal. Like I, I, I completely understand just wanting it to end. Like you just when you're in the process, you will do anything to not be in that process because while you're in that process, you don't feel heard. You only feel attacked. You only feel guilty. You only feel like you're in the wrong. You don't feel like you've got a voice. You don't feel like you've... And everything's taken away from you to even have that strength to answer those questions or even see the questions, let alone answer them. As I said, if I didn't have someone that could translate it to me and we work through it, you know, side by side, I would have stepped out then too. I I wouldn't have kept going. But I also know I wouldn't have been able to look myself in the eye after and think that I'd given it everything that I could. So I needed to keep going. But I could honestly only go because of the, you know, I wouldn't have been able to do it on my own. And I know that many people do that on their own and you, d- you, don't, you don't get through the process. It says here, I still, I'm just shaking my head a little <laughs> lot of these things. Ethical standards have assessed the above allegations in accordance with the Crime and Corruption Act 2001 and determined that the allegations, if proven, meet the definition of corrupt conduct in in accordance with the Crime and Corruption Commission, Triple C, direction under Section 38 of the Crime and Corruption Act 2001 and the matter that was also referred to the Triple C for further assessment. The Triple C later provided the matters assessed report, which confirmed that the Triple C had independently assessed the allegations as if proven, meeting the definition of corrupt conduct. Yes. So that Sorry, actually cr- says crime and corruption, not crime and misconduct. But you no, know, but all that I was says there that crime and corruption assess the allegations as if proven. Yes. So they've already said that it's proven before they've even had come back. Yes. Yes. Wow. What's hard to ignore is the fact. <clears throat> I mean, the, the allegation or the official suspension, um, well, you said they walked you out of the room in February. Yes. It's taken, again, 10 months <laughs> for them to actually, mm-hmm. oh, excuse my ignorance, is that is that normal practice when it comes to things like this? I mean, um, yeah, and you mentioned it before about how, how transparent you were. Wouldn't it be... Um, appropriate just to get it out of the way as quick as possible. Oh, you know, have a have a, mm. have a swift swift um, conclusion to it all. Yes, and um, not only in terms of, I guess, emotionally and ethically and professionally and strategically, it also costs a lot of money. It costs a lot of money to. Um, suspend somebody and go through um, all the processes that need to go through with um, independent investigators, um, paying me while I'm not there. So you're on full pay through this, yeah? I'm on pay. Yes. Yeah. Um, So that, you know, the, the money, this is taxpayers' money as well that's... Um, used and I understand that they need to be thorough um, 
because ultimately if I'm um, doing the wrong thing, then I deserve, I, I deserve to be uh, punished and I deserve to be disciplined 100%. Um, but the, the issue is that I, I, I didn't know what I'd done wrong and I, I didn't again, know. <laughs> again, it's hard, it's hard to sort of get past the fact that it's taken them so long because if they wanted to, um, wanted a result or something, you know, why wouldn't they just talk to you? Yes. And I actually, one of the things as I was <laughs> leaving the building was um, I actually said, just talk to me. I've got nothing to hide. I'm more than willing to um, talk through any issues. All you need to do is talk to me. Um, yeah, because I, I couldn't understand why this was happening. And I'm, I'm still in shock. They've actually said it's been proven before you even know what it was. Yes, that that can't be right. Wow. So you said before that you went on leave on sick leave. Yes. And there's a note here that says this is obviously from an email. I know that you do not have sufficient sick leave balances for the period covered by this certificate. As such, QSS have processed the certificate and have charged your sick leave to rec leave due to your sick leave being exhausted. Mm-hmm. Once that's been exhausted, the leave balance is you'll then have sick leave without pay. Yes. You're currently not working, though. You're employed still, but you're yes. not actually working. So your sick leave and your rec leave would still be growing, though, wouldn't it? Uh, like I believe employee. so. I believe so. Yes, I think it was accrued. But they're saying, so you can't come in, <laughs> but then now you're off sick, obviously, because... For, for definite reasons. Mm-hmm. So then we're going to take all your holidays off you as well mm-hmm. um, because you're sick. And then once after that, we just won't pay you anymore. Yes. It's it better, doesn't it? It does. So my other avenue, I think, would have been, um, uh, I think it would have been if I wanted to uh, pursue work cover mm-hmm. um, was another avenue um however i just i wanted to ride the process and tell my truth so that was my i was just trying to refuel and gain enough energy to do that i was also actually through it all even after all this i was actually still hopeful that um they would come to me for a conversation and a resolution I never believed it was going to go that far I like when I walked out I thought oh they'll give me a call next week we'll talk through the issues and we'll sort it out I didn't believe we would have gotten to this point I was still hopeful that uh, we would have a conversation and resolve it Um, I still believed in uh, the work that we were trying to do in terms of strength and community and um, greater outcomes across the region and I still believe that that was going to happen at that stage still even even after I'd received this I was still hopeful that we would be able to resolve it and, and also in that use my story to um, change processes so I always want to feedback I always want to be able to um, look at how processes are 
how processes are managed and written so that you can make them better. So we're 12 months in, or just under, we're 11 and a bit months in now. Yep. And then you make a massive call. Yes. And it was because I I had no choice, uh, uh, because up until that time, I still believed that a resolution, and that's why I waited, but I knew that um, I had to, so what I did was I um, raised a complaint with the Human Rights Commission. And the reason I did that was another step in terms of being able to tell my truth, um, but potentially through an avenue that was neutral. Um, And you have up to 12 months after an incident to lodge a complaint. So I knew that in February, 12 months was up for that, to lodge that. Um, And the reason why I raised it on the... 26th of January is because for us it's survival day and it was it was a way of me I guess just trying to change the energy um and narrative for myself around that day that um it was my small way of empowering myself and 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 kind of attached it to that day to try and do that. So that's why I um, lodged it on the 26th of January um, and also because I knew I had to do it before 12 months. So I had no choice or I would have lost that opportunity um, to lodge that. And, and lodging that was all about being able to look at how these processes are done and make them better, change them, highlight um, how disempowering they are, highlight that um, it uh, feels like a system of oppression and that uh, so much other things are kind of connected to that in, in everything that they do, not just this, not just this suspension process or, or how they recruit people or manage people once they're employees. And not only government, even like large industries as well. Um, yeah. So what was the actual complaint? So the complaint um, was around how wasn't a um, wasn't attached to the allegations. It had nothing to do with the allegations. The complaint was around how I was treated and how the allegations were managed. So that was attached to how I had sought clarification. So I had always um, declared my conflicts of interest. I live a life with many different roles. So I live a life of um, holding a position, uh, an employment position. Um, I hold a role as a um, traditional custodian. I hold a role as a community person. Um, And they all feed into networks that all interact. and I sought clarity um, from them on the back of conflict of interest forms that I'd already filled out as to how do I communicate and stay in a relationship with my community um, through this process. And 
I made a number of requests around those lines and the response I received did not provide any clarity and it was under the basis of how they managed that as to why my complaint was accepted by the Human Rights Commission as a breach of the Anti-Discrimination Act as well as a breach of the Human, Queensland Human Rights Act and I could pursue that complaint um, under, under which one that I wanted and I chose um, the Anti-Discrimination Act to pursue it under those grounds. So then that created a whole nother journey. <laughs> so it was two journeys. It was um, very much around how I was being treated and managed through the process, but that that was very separate from the actual allegations and completely separate and, and not attached to what the allegations were. That was a, a departmental process. Um, and, and in that I um, engaged a lawyer and... Um, needed to find the right lawyer for me that um, in terms of uh, cultural safety and understanding um, to be able to then address those allegations of which I did and I answered every allegation and then over the you know over two and a half years from the beginning um, those allegations were slowly decreasing as we went went along. Were you happy with the response that you got as part of putting in that submission to human rights? I, I, we look at this timeline here, 26th of January, mm-hmm. you, you send in the submission. Yes. On the 2nd of February, um, you still have 15 issues, but now you have 120 allegations. Yeah, so they kind of multiplied. Um, and I think... I'd. It, it seemed coincidental, coincidental that it kind of happened around the same time, but um, I do know they weren't. In my state of mind, I felt like one was attached to the other, um, although in, re- in reality I don't believe they were. Um, and I knew that um, I was now in two separate processes. So it was then about... Um, I guess aligning myself in to with the right support to then manage those two two different processes that I then needed to face. I needed to face um, the allegations, and then I also needed to make sure that I could face the um, Human Rights Commission. The Human Rights Commission gave me was my avenue. And always was my avenue to be able to speak my truth. Was all my always my avenue to um, show that if if we made it right through all of this, all the information becomes public through the Human Rights Commission. If you make it right through, everything becomes public, and wow. that and that means that nothing can be. And that's what I fought for the whole time. I fought that. I have nothing to hide. Even if I'd done something wrong and the worst possible thing, I'm, I'm happy for the world to know that and for the world to, I guess, judge me on that. But I had nothing to hide and, and all I wanted was to be able to share all the information, even if it, even if it made me look bad. 
um, because, <laughs> well, I also couldn't figure out what it was, but um, whatever it was, I was more than happy for anyone and everyone to know that. So these allegations, the now 120 we're at, so it's nearly, yes. it's nearly multiplied by 10. Yes. Um, did they go and give you details of each one? Like did they yes. say this on this date, this happened, that yes. happened? So that's yes. where they went through in So detail. by the time um, that came around, everything was very detailed um, and it was also um, had attached evidence to it. So you had the list of allegations and then you had – the encyclopedia of, yeah. of um, evidence. And it was when, and I couldn't even open the email, to be honest. I, well, I, I couldn't, I struggled with the first one, but then when this one came through, I couldn't even open it. And as I said, if it wasn't for the professional support that actually sat with me and opened that email for me and then committed, um, and it's a huge commitment to actually sit beside me to go through that, um, I wouldn't have been able to do it. There's no way. I, cu- I couldn't even, um, as I said, I couldn't even read it for myself. I couldn't open it or read it. It was, I think it was that big. It came in a few few emails because it was too big. So big, yeah. Um, but it was literally paid like thousands of pages of info. And then when we started to break it down and, and look at the nitty-gritty, there was even evidence that counteracted the allegation. So some of the evidence even counteracted what the allegation was, but we had to highlight that. Mm. You mentioned something before, and it's always interesting me, cultural safety. Mm-hmm. What's that? Cultural safety is around um, where, as an Aboriginal person, for myself, mm-hmm. as an Aboriginal person, I am understood and I feel safe to be able to um, live and sit within my culture um, and that it is accepted by those around me and understood. Okay. So um, it's even two-way. It's about me having the strength and safety to be able to bring people next to me on that journey and understanding and understand that strength that I gain and my beliefs um, with a religion, you have things written down in a book um, and it's very spiritually based, but it's very clear in terms of um, having that understanding and safety, it, for example, with a, with a religion. Um, but for our culture, it can vary across our different communities and our different connections to our communities and our families, that isn't standard right across Australia. Um, But if I've got cultural safety, I feel safe in being able to explain what that is for me and have that respected within the workplace. We have um, workplace health and safety that keep people safe from cutting off their arms but spiritual safety is just as important for us. If we don't have that, we don't want to actually, we're not safe. In, this might as well be cutting off our arm because we don't feel like we belong or that we're safe in that environment. 
doesn't that's everyone just want to feel that way? Yes. 100%. That's yeah. what I mean. It's yes. Having to define it, it scares me. Yes. Because that's how we all should feel. Mm. That's, that's right. Um, amazing. Yes. So you went off after these allegations, you were still on sick leave, and you go back to work around the 18th of March. Mm-hmm. And then on the 19th, this independent investigator emails you. This happens for the day after you got back to work. Yeah, they have to wait for communication until you're back, as okay. I was saying. Like, if I'm on leave, they um, aren't really allowed to communicate with me. And it was the only way I could kind of get a breather as much as I wanted as much as I wanted it to end. I was also not strong enough. Um, yeah, I just wasn't strong enough and I, I just needed to breathe. I just needed a minute to breathe. Um, so, yeah, as soon as you're back on board, you're back into it. So is this independent investigator asking you for a face-to-face interview? Is it on the phone? Yeah, the, it, I, there was an element of um, you've got to come in and, and that felt quite intimidating yeah, to me as to well. Yeah, go into the office, wow. You've got to um, come in and be grilled <laughs> um, and answer uh, to the allegations. And it was at that point that my I had negotiated with my lawyer that um, whether he could attend that meeting for me and we did um, – we prepared a written response as well to all the allegations, um, which took a lot of time and, and energy. And um, I understand why many people wouldn't face that um, because it is very confronting and arduous. And as I said, until someone was sitting next to me breaking it down, that we actually honestly laughed at some of them um, because it looked like, well, it's just really added in there to bulk it up um, because the more of it is, the, the more you s- that gets thrown at the you, the less you see because um, you just kind of go into this blind fog um, and when you're in a state that you don't trust yourself anymore, um, that you don't know who you are, um, and you can't even get that clarification from people around you because you're disconnected from them. Um, yeah, just you question everything. So you don't see, you can't interpret or see anything um, the way you kind of normally would. Yeah. So can I ask, without trying to get too personal, Um. What's going on at home then? I mean, like, I'm just interested in, in human behaviour. Yeah. You know, situations like this, um, sometimes our behaviours can, you know, come a bit bit impulsive or mm. a bit late class. So yep. what was going on at home? At home, yeah. At home, I'm, um, to be honest, totally disconnecting. So in my protective mode as a mother and a wife, I don't want my children or my husband to have to feel what I'm going through. Um, so I um, I just keep it to myself. I don't sleep anymore. I, I, I sit up all night awake. That's when my worry time is because everyone's asleep so that they don't really see it. I'll 
cry in the shower so that they don't see that um, and just try to put up a brave front to, to keep everything going. Um, but, yeah, in ter- like I'm not there. I'm really just a shell in, in automatic pilot. No doubt people would have tried contacting you as well outside the family. Yeah, so community. I was starting to um, avoid some phone calls. People were uh, reaching out um, and that was one of the, I guess, one of the strengths too, like to know that people were just, not that they wanted anything, but people just loved and missed me and they're like, I haven't seen you around, like what's going on? My saving grace, and um, I'm not sure that anyone else has this power, but um, I can laugh about it now, but was COVID. So COVID came along and um, I could hide behind the shadow of COVID. Gave a bit of an excuse, didn't it? That's what, you know, uh, it, it saved me. People, they don't miss you as much because everyone was in lockdown. So I could hide out a lot. Um, in the early stages, um, before other things kind of happen, I could hide behind those. But um, initially, uh, COVID um, came and I and I hid out. And when people were contacting me, it was just in ways that they didn't have to look in my eyes um, because I just couldn't face anyone. I felt like, even though I couldn't tell the details. And I, and I was happy not to tell the details. To look people in the eye, I felt like I was lying to them if they didn't know, if I if they didn't know the whole of me so because all of my relationships are around what you see is what you get and when we're connected, you see and know the whole of me. Um, and I felt like I would be lying to people if I was almost like keeping their secret. So to text and stuff was a lot easier. And some of your family during this time, obviously going through some rough trots as well. Yeah, and then we moved into, after the COVID, I could then, um, I hid behind, um, my daughter became quite ill with lymphoma and um, we also had some other stuff sort of happened in the family that I could kind of focus on and hide behind and say, oh, you know, we're, and we were, because I knew it wasn't a lie, <laughs> um, dealing with those things so that that's what was taking my attention. And um, I was, my main focus was my family, which is, um, which was a truth. Um, but it was also easy to hide behind because they then didn't ask me questions about work if they thought, oh, okay, well, she's off. Um, because she's got um, family priorities. So, um, but in the background, I'm sort of having to deal with those two, but, you know, I, I hid behind them. One less thing to worry about, because mm. no doubt you had plenty on your plate. Yeah, a little bit. And it's one of those things, <laughs> again, I'm I'm interested in, in behaviours, mm. you know. Um, we all know that saying, Hell is the bottomless pit. Yeah. Bottom, now I, I don't know what is. Correct me if you think I'm wrong, but it, it come from somebody that you know was in a bad situation, and in the city, sometimes we find ourselves in a in a pretty tough situation. But a lot of the time, we tend to do things that make it a lot worse. 
Yes. You know what I mean? So again, I, I want to keep asking the question about how you were able to um, get through mm. this this stage because for a lot of people, they would struggle with it. You know, for me, and understand it, it's, it, it's inspiring. Um, and I think part of this um, needs to be shared so that it could inspire other people. Mm. And I had other ways, like, because I was always so desperate to, well, I'd live my life, life always um, connecting with other people and um, celebrating other people and stuff. So that's always been my life. Um, so I felt like I was cut off from that, but it was such a huge part of who I am and my responsibility. Um, but I did things like I started a page which was um, uh, random messages of kindness. So that was just on Facebook and it was just, it was like a one-way communication. It was just, we could send out messages of hope and love um, and, and have that because there was no questions in that. But it meant that in some way I could have that connection of love and hope and try to keep it alive in some way. Um, and I'd organised a, um, uh, like a weekend wellness retreat for women, um, women that I knew, friends and stuff, and just kind of informally had organised that because it was, um, I guess, a way of me feeling like I was helping others, that it could be more a, a one-way thing and, and not questions coming at me. Um, so that was, you know, a couple of things that I felt like I could do and tried to do to really just selfishly keep my own strength up. Nothing wrong with being selfish every now and then, especially <laughs> when you're going through situations <laughs> like that. It's um, it's it's unbelievable. Mm. So during all this time, um, when they first suspended you, they gave you an end date of August 21. Is that right? Uh, no, I don't think I had an end date. Oh, did I? Because in April they've they've extended your suspension. Sorry, to August 21. Oh, so that was when uh, dates started coming in. I think that was okay. after the allegation. So to start with, I had no end date. It was just you were off until further notice. Yeah, and and you didn't get an end date um, until it was attached to the um, investigation and stuff. Okay, that makes more sense. And um, but now you're working towards dates, so it makes it. Does it was that harder or? Um, it, it gave me, an, oh, there's an end, like yeah, a it gave me a little bit of a light until they then kept extending it. Yeah, I know, so in here <laughs> it just keeps going on and on and on. Yeah, so I thought I had an end date and then it was like, oh no, tricked you, it's no end date, we're going to, there's, uh, for a multitude of reasons, um, that would extend, which are totally understandable, but, um, it certainly doesn't help your emotional state when you just want it to end you just want it to end and there's certainly times in there where um I was I just wanted to step out there was there's times in there even though I had the professional support that was pretty much my crutches um holding me up and I certainly can't express my gratitude enough for those um, supports because they literally got me through that um, but there was definitely times even with that support I thought I just can't do it anymore 
Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to my story. I hope that it helps people out there that may be going through something similar and feel like they're alone. There is so much more to this story and so many more yarns that we want to have along the way. So I certainly hope that we can connect um, and hear each other well into the future. Thank you.